Good day and welcome to the ESPN Monday Night Football Media Conference Call. Today's conference is being recorded at this time. I would like to turn the conference over to Mr. Bill Hoffheimer. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, Nadia, and thanks to the members of the media who have joined us today. Welcome to our kickoff call for the 50th season of Monday Night Football. On the line, we have Booger McFarlane in his second Monday Night Football season and first as our solo analyst in the booth. John Perry, our new NFL officiating officiating analyst who joined ESPN after 19 seasons as an NFL official, including serving as the head referee for the Super Bowl in Atlanta in February. Lisa Salters, our Monday Night Football reporter, now in her eighth season on the NFL sideline. And Jay Rothman, our Monday Night producer since 2000 and the producer of ESPN's primetime NFL game since 2001. I'll note Joe Tessitore, the other member of this team, is unable to join the call today. Tess is calling this weekend's top-ranked fight in London and is currently traveling. But if there are any follow-ups for him, please feel free to contact me or Allie Stoneberg in our department, and we'd be happy to arrange what we can with Tess in advance of our opener. So this group will kick off the NFL season September 9th with the Houston Texans versus New Orleans Saints at 7 p.m. Eastern time. That game will be followed by Broncos versus Raiders in Oakland as part of our Week 1 doubleheader. Steve Levy, Brian Greasy, Lewis Riddick, and Laura Rutledge will call that game. Before we begin the media Q&A, I'll have Jay share a few opening remarks, followed by Booger, John, and Lisa. Uh, just a reminder, we'll have a transcript and an audio replay of this call. Jay, I'll let you kick things off. Thanks, Bill. Good afternoon. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'll just say real briefly, we're energized and excited about our team, our schedule, uh, being part of NFL 100 and certainly the 50th season of Monday Night Football. Um, we've spent a lot of time in the offseason together doing a lot of self-scouting, scouting of other broadcasts and things of that nature, identifying who we want to be and what we want to be and where we want to go. Um, and we just want to come in and do a great job of covering the games. We're focused on our preparation and working together as a team and uh, letting the product we all produce speak for itself. Um, excited about Tess and Booger being together. Obviously, they've had a relationship going back to the SEC network. Uh, they're great friends. We did have a season together, albeit with Jason Witten last year, but we had a season together where Booger wound up in the booth for the last couple of games. Um, as I said, a lot of hard prep in the off season. We were able to do uh, not only our two preseason games together, but a rehearsal game, and um, uh, just really excited about them and uh, and what they're going to uh, produce for us this year. Uh, Bill mentioned the addition of John Perry. I call him our secret weapon. Um, J John is, is wonderful, outstanding referee in the league um, for over a decade, well over a decade, with a, a few Super Bowls under his belt. Um, and I think he's going to help us tremendously in not only adding clarity to what's become complex in terms of uh, new rules and things of that nature, but a great guy, great relationship, so well respected by the league teams, coaches, players, uh, great anecdotes. I think he's going to be terrific for us, not only on Monday Night Football, but across all of our studio programming at ESPN, so we're excited about that. And, of course, Lisa's been with us for quite some time. Um, she's terrific um, in all of her work, and uh, it's a great group. 
uh, and uh, we're just excited to get going. Really thrilled about the schedule um, across the board and um, yeah, anxious to get going. Thanks, Jay. Booger? Yeah, I echo those same sentiments that Jay did. You know, looking forward to it. Um, really, um, really enjoyed last year in, in, in our uh, goal to be new and innovative, but, you know, very thrilled to be up in the booth this year. Looking forward uh, to that, not only calling games, but working with Joe, somebody who I've had a relationship with for a long time. Uh, Lisa is, is was our rock last year. She'll continue to be uh, kind of the glue that holds us together. But I, I think we're all looking forward to just getting to New Orleans and, and seeing what the Houston Texans are going to present to the New Orleans Saints. That should be a rocking environment. Um, but truly excited, prepared, and ready to go. Thanks, Booger. Lisa, we'll go to you, and then we'll finish with John before the media question. Uh, always an exciting part of the year. Um, can't wait to get going. Can't wait to work with uh, Jay and uh, Bug and Tess, and welcome John this year. Um, always, uh, just, it's a privilege to be a part of this team. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Lisa. Go ahead, John. Well, as an official, I'm not used to all these nice things being said, so I'm hoping that there's a lot more conference calls forthcoming. Uh, 19 years in the field, at 54 years old, I'm the new kid on the block. Joining Jay and Jimmy Platt and Joe, Booger, Lisa, uh, just a great team, and I hope I can compliment them and support them, as uh, Jay mentioned, trying to provide some clarity in a highly criticized and complicated game, and uh, I can't wait to get rolling in New Orleans. Thanks, John. We'll start the media questions now. We'll go to Barry Wilner at AP, followed by Sam Farmer at the LA Times. Go ahead, Barry. Uh, thank you, Bill. Uh, I have uh, the same question sort of uh, for John and for Booker. Uh, first, um, John, with the, um, uh, the rule now allowing that replay can look at interference calls, um, how do you think that's going to affect the officiating and the game itself? And then, Booger, I'd like to know what you think it's going to do to the strategy of coaches using the challenge flag. Well, I'll kick things off. You know, we've had three weeks um, excluding a few plays, meaning two or three that I would say maybe the outcome should have been different. I would give the league very high marks as it pertains to the guidelines that they agreed on with clear and obvious visual evidence significantly hinder. Uh, they're not really reofficiating the play. The, the outcome is totally determined on is there clear and obvious visual evidence that we can confirm it or we should reverse it. We've had limited reversals based on that, that concept. I'm cautiously optimistic uh, preseason is preseason, uh, but the rubber will meet the road here in about two weeks. You know, and from a strategic standpoint, I, I think that's what the coaches have spent the preseason trying to figure out. Like, what can I challenge? When can I challenge it? Uh, how is Al going to use his uh, subjectivity in New York to figure out what he's going to overturn? Are they going to put a flag down? So I, I think the strategic part is still being worked out. Uh, you know, anytime you have new uh, change or addition to the rules, uh, I think the one thing we all want is to figure out how uh, how they work, when can we challenge, 
and you know, I think we're lucky on our team that we have John Perry because uh, some of the coaches don't even know all the rules. So you, you know how our team is going to be leaning on him, uh, somebody with Super Bowl experience. But from a coaching standpoint, I think the coaches are still trying to figure it out. And hopefully by the time we get to games that matter, uh, not only late in the regular season, but in the postseason, you'll start to see some strategic things being done. But I think they're still trying to figure it out. Just a quick follow-up, uh, Booger. Do, do you think that maybe coaches will not be challenging, in the, say, in the first half, maybe the spotting of the ball or things like that, when they might figure they need to save a challenge for later in the game where a big 40-yard interference penalty could happen? Well, I, I definitely do. I, I think coaches are going to always try to keep one in the holster just because they know that at some point, and we saw it in the preseason, you know, where a guy, you know, we thought a guy made a great defensive play, but if you go back and look on replay, there was the inside arm pulling the receiver's arm down. I think that coaches are going to try and do their best uh, but also coaches have a lot of analytics people upstairs. They have rules guys upstairs. They're going to know by the time we get to the games that matter what they can challenge from a strategic standpoint, uh, should they save a challenge, so on and so forth. Thank you, guys. All right, we'll go to Sam, followed by Richard Deitch at The Athletic. Go ahead, Sam. Thanks, guys. I, I think Barry and I should have compared notes before we got on the call. We had sort of the same questions I, I'd ask John. Uh, one for John, going back to the NFC Championship game, which uh, uh, Saints and Rams are meeting in week two, so I think it's going to be a big topic. But how does something like that non-call happen? What don't we see or understand that, that because it seems very easy from watching the TV, but in, in a live situation, it's probably much more difficult. And then I, I would uh, ask Jay Rothman just, do you have anything up your sleeve to further tell the story of these uh, um, of this rules change? So but start, starting off with John, about how this happened. Well, I wish I had Booger's Telestrator right now. Uh, it was a two-by-two two formation with the back to the weak side that runs what we reference as a wheel route to the sideline. If an official were able to start and end with that running back, I'll guarantee we would actually have gotten both fouls. There's actually pass interference as well as helmet-to-helmet -helmet contact on a defenseless player. Mechanically, it's not how it's officiated. With the two-by-two two set towards the New Orleans sideline, the back judge actually starts in the middle of the field and has to first officiate defensive holding. Then he kicks out to the nearest receiver who's running a go route right up the middle. So now he's got defensive holding there, illegal contact, potentially a rub route by the receiver. Gary Cavaletto, who is the deep side judge, has the widest receiver on that sideline to start with. There was a very suspect OPI rub route that he had to clear first prior to getting out to the flat where the ball was thrown. The line of scrimmage officials dealing with offside encroachment, false start formation. Then he goes zone, and the, that running back then enters his zone, ball in the air. My guess is all three eyes, all three sets of eyes get there a little bit late. Eyes are still moving. Is the ball 
at the receiver, past the receiver. It's one or two frames. Was it pass interference? Absolutely. Was it helmet-to-helmet contact? Absolutely. Is, is, it, is it or was it as easy as we would all take a look at it with hindsight 2020 vision? No, because nobody started there, nobody ended there. That's very good. Thank you. Jay, did you want to address? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, Sam, I would just tell you, good afternoon, buddy. Uh, a couple of uh, new looks that we've added, we tested in the preseason. It was blessed by the league this past Monday uh, and have had success in college football. We're what we call the line-to-gain cameras and marker cams. So literally um, a pylon, a, uh, a remote, if you will, um, wireless pylon camera on the near and far sideline at the first down marker, and then a camera in the marker itself. Um, we played with it in Arizona and Denver. In particular, in Denver, had great looks, not just in picking up the first down, but being able to pick up, um, again, interference and, and things of that nature. So, you know, we recognize the onus is on us in a timely fashion to provide these looks with clarity as quickly as possible. We've had several conversations with the league, including um, when we got to visit with them in New York in early August, um, just about that. You know, I hope that one day, and uh, I believe the league wants it as well, that they will take in these individual camera feeds into New York, similar to what Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NHL do, um, because it does put a, a lot of pressure on us in the moment to provide these looks. And I've had just, you know, I've had some just casual conversations in the off season with, you know, a couple of head coaches um, to help them understand um, national, uh, national games, primetime games versus when they're in a regional window per se. And I think that's another strategy that coaches have to take into consideration, um, understanding the hardware that each of the broadcast partners brings to them on a weekly basis and having confidence in throwing a flag or not throwing a flag. I think that will, will, will very much come into it. Um, obviously, primetime national games that we have multiple looks, high frame rate cameras, specialty cameras, you know, where they can feel confident. So that's kind of fascinating and interesting to me as it relates to the new rule. Thanks, Jay. We'll go to uh, Richard Deitch, followed by Andrew Marchant, the New York Post. Thanks, Bill. Uh, two quick ones for Jay. Uh, Jay, first off, um, how would you characterize management's commitment to the team of Joe and Booger long-term? Big time, Richard. I mean, really, really big time. Very comfortable, very comfortable with them. Um, two very talented guys who have a relationship and know each other. And, uh, you know, they're terrific. And we recognized um, – Booger's talents, not only through his work on SEC and college football uh, in his audition last year and certainly throughout the season. So feel really good about it. Second question, Jay, is um, as we continue to head towards more legalization of sports gambling in different states, and as your network outside of Monday Night Football continues to delve more into sports gambling and sports gaming, um, will there be any... um, either major or minor changes on your presentation of Monday Night Football as it relates to sports gambling information for the public? 
Not re- not really, Richard. You know, our approach is consistent with previous seasons. Uh, no plans to discuss gambling. Um, the league is watching, obviously, carefully the industry and where that's going. And, you know, if there's changes in their policy, um, they'll let us know and uh, we'll act accordingly. But in terms of anything we do on screen uh, or verbally, um, no- nothing's changed, at least for now. Thank you, Jack. Thanks, Richard. We'll go to uh, Andrew Marshan, followed by Catherine Terrell at The Athletic. I'll start, I'll start with Jay. Jay, what, what did you learn from last year with the three-man team and um, with Booger on the sideline? Um, you know, it was a different approach. and um, But, you know, we got better as the season went on. You know, I feel really good, uh, Andrew, about uh, the product at the end of the year. We knew we'd be better in week eight versus week one and week 16 versus week eight. And I really do believe we got there. I know Jason took uh, a lot of heat, and that was unfortunate. I think there was a ton of good that Jason brought to the table, um, and we're happy for him and hope he uh, has a, a great season with the Dallas Cowboys. At the same time, we're thrilled with Booger. Booger's, Booger is super talented. Um, what we learned last year about Booger is he has an incredible likability, um, incredible work ethic. Um, his network within the league um, is awesome, and how he sees the game and the nuances of the game is awesome. And um, so we're thrilled about that. And um, you know, we're just looking forward to moving forward here. I do recognize that we have not had continuity in the booth. You know, that 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 doesn't um you know get lost with me. And I also do recognize that, you know, with most importantly with viewers, continuity matters. You know, there's a feel good with Buck and Aikman, there's a feel good with Alan Chris, obviously, and there's a feel good now with Nance and Romo, and this is year one of Tess and Booger, and we need to get there. But, you know, we need to earn it, and and that's why I said at the top we need to let our work and product speak for itself and um, sort of lay in the weeds and slowly earn the respect of, of fans and viewers. And I think with that comes um, comfort. The comfort, I should say, comes with continuity. And we certainly, um, you know, we need to get there, and I believe we're going to get there with uh, Tess and Boog and Lisa. And Booger, uh, similar question. Just what did you learn from your first year on Monday night that you feel like you can take in to this year? Oh man, I mean, I mean everything. You know, coming from college football, um, you know, the NFL is, is a different business. How it's viewed, how it's consumed, uh, how the fans uh, gravitate toward it, what the fans are looking for, and and I think just to go through. Uh, a year seeing the game from my vantage point really opened my eyes to that, number one. Number two, I learned a lot from Jason. You know, Jason is is a very um, dedicated, prepared individual when he comes to work. And, you know, just seeing seeing the details in which that he does his job uh, preparing really kind of opened my eyes just from an offensive perspective because I play defense. So just seeing the game and the little nuances differently – and then just watching, you know, watching Lisa, how she prepares for her job and the consistency at which she does it and has done it for a long time. So, you know, you take all of that and, and, you, and you put it in perspective. Uh, you deal with the good, you deal with the bad, just like we do as, as players. And, you know, you go through the offseason and, and you go back and you watch the tape and you learn little nuances 
and you move forward. And I think that's where I am. Uh, and, and I think, you know, right now for me, it's in a really good spot having gone through last year. I, I don't think I would be where I am now without going through last year, whether that's the good part, the bad part, or the in-between. I think that prepared not only myself, uh, I think, but all of us to get to where we are now. Okay, we'll go to Catherine uh, in New Orleans, followed by Chris Dave at Maven Sports. Go ahead, Catherine. Catherine, you on? Yeah, sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry about that. Okay. Hey, Booger, um, I was curious, in your evaluation of the NFL teams, who do you think top to bottom has maybe the best room of quarterbacks? The best room of quarterbacks? Um, I mean, before the retirement of Andrew Luck, I, I would have said Luck and Brissett because I think those two were both starting quarterbacks. Um, you know, right now, um, depending on how you want to play it, maybe in Chicago with, with Trubisky, um, Chase Daniel, how they played, it's all about system and fit, you know. Um, you're looking for your backup quarterback to come in, and he's not going to be the starter all year. Otherwise, he would probably be petitioning to get a starting job somewhere else. What I would say is you're looking for a guy that can come in and get you four or five starts if need be. Uh, you know, Philadelphia was blessed to have two guys that could start an entire season. Uh, I don't think that that's the norm around the National Football League to have – two guys who could be starters because the guy that's a backup is eventually going to want his opportunity. Uh, so I, I don't know if you're, you're going to see a, a, a great situation. I, I named a few, uh, but because of Luck's retirement, I think Indy is a little weak now. Uh, I like what they do in Chicago because of the fit with Matt Nagy's offense and the way that they put that team together. I think that they have a really, really good nucleus. And, you know, you could even go to Baltimore because – I know that, you know, Lamar Jackson is catching a lot of flag based on his ability in the pocket. But if you look at what they want to do running the football and how they want their quarterback to play, their situation in Baltimore is pretty good with uh, Lamar and, and Robert. So I think those would be a couple that jumped, jumped out. But it's all about fit and scheme and how you want your guys to play. Okay, we'll go to Chris, followed by uh, Brian Costello at the New York Post. Chris Dave? Able to hear me? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, John Perry did such a nice job breaking down that NFC championship uh, non-call. How much was that play or the, the whole controversy around that, the motivator for bringing him on board for the, for the Monday night um, uh, broadcast team? And then also, Jay, I was curious if you could detail some of the camera differences between maybe the mid midday window games versus the primetime games that you referenced earlier. Yeah, so John Perry, you know, we've uh, he's been on certainly my radar for quite some time, um, and uh, you know, had to wait till post Super Bowl to get after it. You know, we've had um, I'll call it help up in the booth. Over the last you know, several years, Jerry Austin with, was with us for quite some time before he went on to Oakland with John Gruden, you know, to assist there. Jeff Triplett came aboard last year, uh, great guy, uh, and, and, and helped us 
more so off air than on air. But, you know, John is just a unique talent. And um, he's a unique talent who um, I thought would be ideal. We thought would be ideal um, to help us. And uh, we're just we're just thrilled to have him. And uh, he's just he's going to be a as I said a secret weapon not only for Monday Night Football but for shows like Sports Center, Get Up, our NFL studio programming. I think you're going to see a lot of John this football season. And uh, you know we're thrilled to have him on the team. And he's just a great guy and a great guy. Um, to be with. And then just as it relates to cameras, you know, um, you'll see in, you know, mostly the four o'clock games, the national games, certainly on Thursday night football, Sunday night football, Monday night football, um, high speed cameras placed at different parts of the field that provide uh, higher frame rates, greater clarity. Um, You'll see on those type of games, pylon cameras that give definitive calls, uh, whether crossing the goal line, you know, feed in, feed out, you know, our pylons, uh, our pylon cameras have four cameras in each of them, you know, looking down, down the sidelines, down the end lines, goal lines, and even on top of the pylons. So those are the type of views. And then I, as I just shared, what we call the line to game or, or marker cams. Um, and these are wide angle cameras with incredible clarity and ability to zoom. So uh, on these games, you'll see, you know, more of these cameras implemented as part of as part of their their normal complements, if you will, versus, um, you know, again, a regional game. And I can't speak to the other broadcast partners once you get below their prime primary game or second game. But inevitably, you know, there's not as many cameras placed on the field, not as many looks um, and. You know, when it comes to, let's just say, pass interference or defensive pass interference, when it's not a star player who's typically isolated off the ball, you know, when you're talking about secondary, third, and fourth receivers who are interfered with, chances are those looks that tele- that the, the, the television trucks are able to provide to replay are very limited. Wider looks from a game camera, um, you know, not not the detail or the lens power that you would with shows that have, um, you know, a multitude of cameras and looks and things of that nature. So I do think it's it's in my opinion, it's just not an it's not an even playing field. Um, it's not an even playing field. And I would hope one day I remember Bill Belichick was very vocal about it and I agreed with him. You know, I would love to see where the stadiums put in their own pylon cameras and provided those feeds to all broadcast partners and provided their own, you know, goal line cameras, if you will, and down the line cameras. Um, I hope that day and age comes not only just to, you know, help the broadcast partners, but, you know, from a team's perspective to even the playing field a little bit. I hope that made sense. Okay, let's go to uh, Brian. Oh, thanks, Chris. Followed by Phil Rosenthal at the Chicago Tribune. Go ahead, Brian. Uh, Booger, just um, looking ahead to your Week 2 matchup with the Jets and the Browns, I was curious how much you think Adam Gase can help uh, Sam Darnold in Year 2 here. Well, I I think he can do a ton for him. If you look around the league now and you look at all the young quarterbacks, you look at, you know, Trubisky is Chicago. He has Matt Nagy. If you go out west, you look at Jared Goff, he's got Sean McVay. 
Uh, I mean, if you find a young quarterback, usually that young quarterback has an offensive uh, head coach or a play caller or somebody that's kind of in simpatico with him where they are talking the same, they are breathing the same, they are looking at football the same way, and therefore you're seeing those young guys flourish. Just look at Patrick Mahomes. Andy Reid, there was a point last year in our first um, Kansas City game where Andy Reid went and sat on the sidelines. It's kind of the first time I've seen this. As a head coach who is supposed to be worrying about the game and, and controlling the entire team, while the defense was on the field, he went and sat on the sideline next to Patrick Mahomes and kind of put his arm around him and was like, okay, it's kind of me and you. And then that's what you have to have with the young quarterbacks. And bringing that to New York, you know, Sam Donald is very talented. You know, we sat and visited with Adam Gaze. And I'll tell you, you know, I was like everyone else, man. I mean, you know, you watch the press conferences and you see and how everybody reacts. But when you spend five minutes with Adam Gaze, I mean, he's a football guy. Like, I could talk football with him for hours. And I think Sam Donald has a guy much like the other guys that I mentioned, who is going to be in his ear, they are going to be in lockstep, and he's going to build the offense around what Sam likes to do. So I, I fully expect Sam Donald to, not only to flourish this year, I, I think he's going to have one of the better years in the National Football League, even though, from a wide receiver standpoint, he doesn't have the weapons that some of the other guys do. I still think it's going to be a really, really good year because he has a guy that's going to guide him along, and that really matters at that position. Thank you. Okay, we'll go to Phil in Chicago, followed by David Barron at the Houston Chronicle. Yeah, I, I guess this is for Jay, although if, if Booger wants to jump in too, that's fine. I, the question is, what? how will the uh, the telecast be affected by the fact you have one less analyst around? I mean, obviously you had only one other analyst in the booth, but in, in reality you had two analysts and, a, and an announcer. This year, obviously, just the two. What what changes? I think just by nature, it's easier for all. You know, it wasn't only – I'll start with Joe Tessitore, you know, and, and the uh, again, his first year doing the NFL, not only integrating a rookie and Jason Witten and, you know, all of us working with Witt to, to bring him along, but at the same time, you know, going somewhat blind down to Booger on the field – even though we had three open mics, there's a choreography to that. Uh, just a much simpler execution for Tess and for myself in terms of just letting these guys go, just by, by sheer numbers and, and clearly by uh, Tess and Booger being side-by-side. Side, it's just a hell of a lot easier. Um, if it's easier, how, how, come there, how come there's this movement to keep three people in the booth for so many sports, including um, last year with, with Monday Night Football? Yeah, I think different points of view. You know, Whit being fresh off the field, um, and not to defend it, but Whit being fresh off the field and having the mind of a quarterback um, and just being, you know, the type of person and player that the Hall of Famer that he is, Booger bringing a different perspective from a defensive point of view and giving him a vantage point, um, you know, that we haven't had before. And, um you know, listen, we've, we've made a mark at ESPN on, on, on risk-taking and, um, you know, and, and, and being bold, you know, and, and that goes back to whether it's talent or whether it's technology, you know, whether it's the yellow line, the sky cam, the steady cam, the goalpost cameras, all, all of this sort of stuff, you know. Uh, we have a history of that. And, um, you know, we took a chance, had no regrets, um, learned from it, and just moving forward. 
but um, and super excited about what Tess and Booger are going to do up in the booth. All right, we'll go to David in Houston, followed by uh, Joey Morona in Cleveland. Go ahead, David. Go ahead, David. Thank you, Bill. I'm a little bit late phoning in, so excuse me if this has been asked before, but I'm curious, Booger, what you think about the the unrest uh, that the Texas have to a certain degree. For one thing, they have no general manager. Uh, Bill O'Brien is apparently the sole, uh, sole power source at this point, and also they have some unrest with the uncertain nature of uh, Jadavian Clowney. Uh, uh, any thoughts on how they uh, shape up going into uh, your uh, your season opening game? Well, it, it's well, definitely it, it, tough it's to definitely run, tough run a franchise when you don't have a guy that's in charge. charge. And, and I think when you look at the Texans having no GM uh, in place, it, it, it makes you wonder who, when, and if this um, Jadavion Clowney deal is going to get done. I think that um, there's a lot of unrest. You know, the offensive line hasn't been good. And, you know, having seen what happened with Andrew Luck, him basically taking too many hits over the years and his body's beat up, which caused him to retire, I think if I'm Houston, I'm a bit concerned because uh, Watson not only has had an ACL, but he's been hit a lot. And so I think the number one thing that I would be concerned about is, A, getting a general manager because that guy is going to work lockstep with the head coach to make sure that you can get the right personnel on that team around the quarterback. I mean, let's be honest. That, that's what the National Football League is. Everyone wants to make sure you get a quarterback, and then when you get him, how do you surround him with weapons and complement to D him with a good defense? And so um, I don't know what the Clowney situation is going to bring. It sounds like they are way uh, far apart. But I do know that it, just, just take your business or your company or, or the company that any of you guys or girls work for. Imagine trying to run a company when nobody's in charge. I mean, at some point you can talk about all the cohesiveness that you want to within and the synergy, but there has to be somebody at the top that's going to say, okay, hey, here's what we're going to do, here's how we're going to do it, and here's when we're going to do it. Those are called leaders. Those are called people in charge. And I just have a hard time understanding how you run an organization when you don't have a guy or girl in person that's going to do it and do it every day. To me, that seems awfully tough to do. Okay, we'll go to uh, Joey in Cleveland, followed by Mike Triplett in New Orleans. Obviously, you have the Browns in week two. Um, High expectations for Baker Mayfield, Odell Beckham Jr., the whole team. Just wanted to know uh, your expectations for the Browns and, and, you know, realistically and and how you see the AFC North shaking out. You know, I I like continuity and consistency, man. And and I think that's, you know, the same thing that excites me about Monday Night Football is, is what kind of excites me about the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, no, they don't have Le'Veon Bell, they don't have Antonio Brown, but they have Mike Tomlin and they have Ben Roethlisberger. Uh, they've infused some young talent on defense. The general manager, Kevin Colbert, is still there. So the consistency with those three, that kind of triumph right there, gives me great confidence in Pittsburgh. Uh, from a talent standpoint, I get it. I understand what everybody sees. Cleveland is as talented as anybody. But there's a certain thing in, in life and in business as understanding how to do it. You can be the most talented writer to ever come out of college, but when you write your first article that's going to be published on a national paper, you still got to go through those, those uh, little nuances of how do you do it and how do you frame it to make sure that everybody gets your point. Even though you're talented, you still have to know how to do it. And I think the same thing applies to football. 
You can be very talented. You can have the best quarterback receiver defense known to man, but if you don't understand how to win, and what I mean by how to win is this, is that the National Football League is comprised of teams that all have the same amount of money to spend from a salary cap standpoint. So you can go out and you can spend as much money as the next team. So what separates the good teams from the bad teams and what separates them consistently? It's the nuances of the game and how many times you do those nuances, i.e., how many times are you going to step with the right foot over the course of a game? It sounds simple, right? It sounds like it's, it's nothing, step with the right foot. If you go back and watch the Super Bowl, the New England Patriots didn't do anything fancy. They just lined up with a fullback and they hit the Rams in the mouth. Sounds simple, right? But they did it over and over and over, and they took away what the Rams did best. And, and I think you have to learn how to win as we bring it back to the Browns. The Browns have to learn that you can't pick and choose when you play. There are going to be 70 to 80 plays in every football game, give or take. The secret and the beauty of the game is we have no idea which plays are going to be the quote-unquote game-changing plays. So what do you have to do? You have to get young players to play every play like it's the last, and that's tough to do. And that's what I mean by learning how to win. Young players want to make the sports center plays, the splash plays, the one-handed catches. They want to be on, on the national uh, TV shows. What they don't want to do sometimes is just plays that go unnoticed. And I think after talking to Freddie Kinsey last week when he was in Tampa with the Browns, I think that's what he did all camp is to try to instill in his team talent is one thing, but how do you get talent to perform consistently over time over the course of a long season? That will determine how far the Browns go. But they're talented. And, you know, when you size up the division, as I said, I think Pittsburgh is one. I would probably put Cleveland right there. Um, you know, Baltimore and Cincinnati, to me, still have a lot to prove in, in some areas. All right. I, I believe Mike Triplett dropped off, so we'll go instead to Daniel Salerson in New Orleans, followed by Jacob Feldman at Sports Illustrated. Go ahead, Daniel. Daniel? Uh, let's see. Make sure we'll make sure your line is open. If you have a question, go ahead. Operator, is uh, is Daniel's line open? Yes, Mr. Sellerson's line is open. Okay, Daniel, are you there? Okay. We'll move on. Um, we'll go to Jacob Feldman at Sports Illustrated, followed by Craig Webb at the Akron Beacon Journal. Go ahead, Jacob. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you guys so much. I hope you're having a good afternoon. I want to ask Booker about um, the Andrew Luck news, and, and, and for me, and, and reading, it seems like one of the biggest takeaways from that announcement has been you know, how little viewers and fans maybe truly understand the, the physical and, and the mental grind of playing in the NFL, recovering from injuries, things like that. Uh, I'm curious what you think about that, but also, you know, what, if, if anything, you feel like you and, and other media members can do to provide, you know, a more realistic perspective on what these guys are going through on a, on a daily and, and annual basis. Yeah, let me paint a picture for you guys, man. Um, following the Hall of Famer, always being asked how you're going to live up to that Hall of Famer. When you get injured, you continually ask, well, what's hurt now, you know, and even when you're not hurt, 
when are you going to achieve the next thing, you know, whether it's a Pro Bowl or an MVP or whatever, a defensive player of the year. And then you got to do it over and over again every year. I'm not talking about Andrew Luck. I'm talking about myself now. See, it's the same thing that I did when I followed Warren Sapp. So the, the pain, the injury, the rehab, you couple that with the, the expectations when you follow a Hall of Famer. Now, Andrew Luck was way better of a player than I ever was. But you kind of get the point of, of, of relatability and the mindset because I think everyone is trying to understand, well, why would Andrew Luck do this? Everyone is trying to understand his mindset. And you got a lot of, you know, hot take guys around the country trying to give all these different things. He quit on his team. He did this. He did that. But the mindset is this, man, is that you get to a certain point in life where you have to make choices and decisions and you got to live with the consequences. And the choices that all football players make is how much wear and tear on my body do I want to endure knowing it's going to happen versus the love for the game versus the amount of money that I can secure. And I think for all of us, there's a balance. And I think Andrew Luck just really opened a lot of eyes because he's 29 years old. He plays a position that he could have played while Tom Brady's playing at 41, 42 years old. So he had over a decade. You know, Jim Mercer talked about another half a billion dollars he could have made. But what I look at is this, I, and I try to go back and learn from it. And it, it's kind of, it was kind of funny because I kind of understand what he's going through. I mean, I, have, I played nine years. I had seven surgeries. And I was always asked, well, do you feel like you're snake bit? Do you feel like you're going to be injured this year? Are you going on IR? And then, you know, okay, are you, uh, Warren Sapp had 12 sacks. Are you going to get the double digit? Andrew Luck was kind of looked at in the same way. You know, he's following Peyton Manning. Hey, you know what? You've gotten to the playoffs, but when can you get this team over the hump? And this was supposed to be that year. This was supposed to be the Colts were the sexy pick for the Super Bowl. Yet still he was hurt again. So I, I just think it's a mindset of a player who is tired of living to others' expectations. And for, for once, I can relate to what he's doing. Now, I don't know if he's going to come back. That's up to him and his choice and his choice alone. I just think that we're going to start to see a lot of players follow the Patrick Willis, follow the um, um, Andrew Luck, follow guys where Calvin Johnson, guys that have, have made a ton of money, but, they're, man, they're just tired of getting beat up, man. They are tired of waking up on a, on a Monday morning and feel like, when I put my feet on the floor, I have no idea what it's going to feel like. I don't, know, I don't know how many of you guys and girls have ever felt that. Like, that's the feeling most players feel every single Monday, especially in the trenches. When you put your foot on the floor, you have no idea what it's going to feel like. But America takes that for granted. And I think we're going to see a lot more players start to value their health. Um, I know it will be sad for fans, but I just think we're going to see a lot more of that over the next five to ten years. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jacob. We'll go to uh, Craig Webb in Akron, followed by Ben Swanson in Denver. Uh, go ahead, Craig. I have a little question for, for John. I'm just kind of curious about you talked about your own career a little bit from 19 years, you know, on the field officiating. That were you anonymous early on? You think, and, and as as high definition and, and more camera angles, and I'm just curious. And from year one to year 19 as an official, did was it hard to walk around a grocery store at home? Uh, are you more recognizable later in your career than you were early in your career? And and did the technology kind of make your job more difficult in terms of off the field? 
Um, well, I, I grew up with officiating. I, I don't remember a world without officiating or without the NFL. And I was taught early on, old school by my father, that your job is to go unnoticed. When they notice you, you have worked a poor football game. Make the calls, make the calls correct, be uh, expeditious with what you announce and how you enforce. Uh, Yeah, I think I did. I think I stayed under the radar. I wasn't enamored with wearing a white hat and spending 20, 30 seconds on television with an announcement. Normally bang those out pretty quickly. Uh, As you know, here in Akron area, I live in a little community, 17,000 people. Uh, But, man, I put the garbage out Tuesday morning just like everybody else. All right, we'll go to uh, we'll we'll go to Ben. Was, uh, Craig, was that? Did you have a follow up? I'm sorry. Good, thanks. Okay, thank you. Uh, we'll go to Ben in Denver, followed by Ben Fisher with Sports Business Journal. Go ahead, uh, Ben Swanson. Boger, it looked like you and the crew got a pretty good look, a close look at the Broncos when y'all were here for uh, ahead of the 49ers game at the joint practices. Uh, what did you observe about the team, and what makes you think they'll be ready for their test on Monday Night Football? Well, I, I think, number one, it, it starts at the top. Uh, you know, when you look at Vic Fangio and having waited, you know, over three decades to become a head coach and what he brings, um, you know, usually teams develop the personality of their coach. And if Denver continues to develop that of Vic Fangio, they're going to be a tough uh, defensive football team that's going to be – uh, very, very, very uh, well coached. They're going to pay pay attention to the details. Uh, and I think that if you look at Joe Flacco coming from Baltimore to Denver, he understands how to play for a defensive team. And so Joe has to come in, take care of the football, don't turn it over, don't try to be a hero, make sure you play to your defense. And then, you know, they have special players on defense. You know, we get enamored with the quarterback position, and rightfully so, because they touch the ball every play. I think in order to be a championship team, you have to have two or three special players. It can be a great kicker, a quarterback, a defensive. Like, you got to have two or three, four special players. they got a couple on defense. You know, when you look at Bradley Chubb, Von Miller, those are special guys. And if other guys around special players will do their job and not try to do everyone else's job, then you can start to build a football team that can stockpile wins. So I like what Denver's doing. I love their leadership. Um, I'm a fan of people that grind. You know, Vic Fangio has been grinding his whole life. You know, sometimes in life there are, there are things based on your last name or the family you come from or based on the side of the tracks that you grew up on. Things are given to you in life, and we've all seen that. Um, Vic Fangio had to earn everything that he's gotten right now being the head coach, and I'm a real, real big fan of people that, that earned things, you know, because I had to live that life myself, man, you know, and so I gravitate toward those people. So I am a huge fan, and I expect big things, uh, you know, from Denver. I understand everyone is waiting on, you know, Drew Locke. I, I would just say this. I don't think the book is closed yet on Joe Flacco, and I think he's the right person for that team. Lisa, in talking to players in Denver, did you want to add anything to that about the Broncos looking ahead to this season? 
So I, I, I uh, live in Baltimore, and so, like, as I was telling Joe Flacco on the sideline, it, it was odd seeing him in, in orange. Uh, but, you know, the one thing, when I got back home to Baltimore, people kept telling me, like, wow, Joe Flacco looked really engaged, and he just seemed, he seemed different to me. Uh, not that he isn't always uh, uh, very considerate and, and, and thoughtful with us, but he just seemed to have a little bit more, a little different juice this time around. And I think that he has a chip on his shoulder, too, that he, he wants to prove that, like Book said, that he, you know, that the book isn't closed on him, that he has a lot of football left. Uh, so I think uh, that coupled with, the, you know, the weapons that he does have, Philip Lindsay, I mean, the you know, what that kid did last season, I can't wait to see uh, what he does for an encore. And like Book said, on defense, uh, having Bradley Chubb and Bob Miller, uh, I think the Denver defense is going to be really special. And if, if Joe Flacco is motivated and, and, and goes out there and wants to show that he, he still can play football, I think the Denver could uh, have a, a really good team. Thanks, Lisa. We'll go to uh, Ben Fisher at Sports Business Journal with the, the final question. Hey, thanks for squeezing me in. Um, Jay, this question is for you. Um, you know, As you know, Fred Gadelli over at Sunday Night Football is tinkering again with that standard line of scrimmage camera angle and presentation. And he says he'll keep trying new things. But as you know, for, for every improvement a different angle brings, it seems to have a drawback, too, that, that upsets some fans or enough fans to keep them from diving in 100% on that. Um, to what extent do you think that, that basic framework, that, that standard presentation of football can – can be improved upon. Maybe the status quo is the status quo for a reason. Where's your mind on that? You're you're talking specifically about Freddie and the NBC crew trying the high sky game camera that they did the other night? Well, the high sky angle from the other night, and then a couple of years ago, they did the the video game presentation for behind the quarterback. And, you know, they haven't gotten rid of those entirely, but they also haven't done that again from a, from a full game perspective. And, uh, you know, I guess it's just an interesting question to me. You know, what, how much improvement do you think there can be in just sort of that standard line of scrimmage presentation? Do you think there is an answer out there that will make everybody happy? You know, I think, um, you know, the, the fun of it is in, 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 you know, working with new technologies, what's out there, how come we're, we're all striving to improve our game coverage. Um, I just think we need to be certainly rock solid when we're going to go for something, um, you know, and, and, and never compromise our coverage. Um, and, and our coverage needs to be bulletproof. You know, I applaud them for the high sky, you know, coverage and giving that a shot. But again, in, in that situation, you're talking about a robotic camera versus a manned camera and having full control of the camera. And, you know, a play downfield live, you never want to miss or not have it. So um, I think that's a great angle to supplement. It's a little bit of risk-reward. You know, maybe you can take some more educated chances on, a, 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 you know, a third and goal or a third and short or a, a fourth and something going for it type thing. Um, but I do think you need to be rock solid. Some of the technology that we're bringing in this year, as I was sharing earlier, being the line to gain or marker cameras, you know, those aren't live cameras per se, but they're definitive angles that can provide clarity instantaneously. So, um, you know, whether it's camera, whether it's graphics, we don't like to, I mean, at least in in, in our house, we don't like to do um, 
things just for the sake of doing it, um, doing it with a purpose and providing meaning uh, is really important. You know, we have that in, in playing around with our next-gen technology. You know, when, when those chips came out on players, I was elated, you know, ecstatic to sort of mine, in, uh, to mine into what can we get out of that? You know, what data can we provide? Now, there's a lot of data that, in my mind, at least in, in covering a live football game, that viewers need to digest and be able to understand what is it and why should I care in a very short, short amount of time. Um, so I just think we need to be careful of all those things. But I applaud the efforts by – I know Freddie very well. He's a, been a longtime colleague and brother of mine since his days back here, and we wine and dine together, you know, off-season. And, um, you know, I applaud his efforts and, and any broadcast partner's uh, efforts for pushing it. But I do think you need to push it with a purpose, and it needs to make sense and hopefully enhance your broadcast. Mm -hmm. Thank you. No problem. Right, we're uh, – we're almost at an hour. Uh, I'll just close our call here by giving uh, our team the chance to just look, you know, immediately at the Saints-Texans game we have in New Orleans. Booger, your home state of uh, Louisiana, what are your thoughts specifically about that game? I think it's going to be a really, really emotional game. I mean, if you look at the Saints in the last two years, the Minneapolis Miracle, what happened last year against the Rams, I think they have to feel like they've been kind of snake bitten a little bit. And uh, it's going to be a lot of emotion in that building uh, opening night because I think they, they feel like they have something to prove. Uh, they feel like that they could have been, and maybe we don't know, maybe the best team in football the last couple of years, but they have nothing to show for. And, and I think they have to go out and diligently try to do it and not try to win the game or win the Super Bowl on opening night. They have to go out and, and, and just be a, be a good football team uh, and do the small thing, realizing that they are good enough to be in position to have another shot, uh, not only getting the playoffs, but to go on and play in the Super Bowl. Uh, so I, I do think that it's going to be a fun night. Uh, if you look at the Texans, uh, the Texans have to figure out how to protect Watson. Uh, losing Lamar Miller to an ACL, no clowny, young offensive line. Uh, the chips are going to be stacked against them a little bit, but it's game one. And I think that's the beauty of it is no one really knows what you're going to get when everybody has to play 70 or 80 plays. But I do think New Orleans is going to come out with a chip on their shoulder, as they should be, because they probably feel like that they should have been uh, playing in at least one of the last two Super Bowls. Thanks, Booger. Lisa, your thoughts? You had that great moment with uh, Drew Brees after he uh, broke the NFL record a year ago on Monday Night Football. What are your thoughts going back to the Dome? Uh, yeah, I was going to say that, you know, any opportunity to cover Drew Brees, uh, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, just listening to Booger talk about the game, I'm getting fired up all, all over again. So uh, I can't wait. Thanks, Lisa. John, your thoughts? Your, it'll be your first official game in the Monday night booth during the regular season? Yeah. After listening to everybody speak today, uh, I'm ready. I'm excited. I would say from my perspective, it's probably the toughest officiating assignment that I'm aware of in 20 years. Wow. All right. And then finally, Jay, your thoughts? Uh, you, we've obviously had many ESPN Monday night games in New Orleans, probably more there than just about any other venue. Your thoughts about going back? Yeah, it's a special place. 
You know, when our first Monday Night Football season, we were fortunate to cover um, the reopening of the Superdome and uh, Steve Gleason's block punt. And that moment and the resilience of the people and the region, and that was, you know, a career, certainly a career highlight for me in covering the NFL. And then fast forward to Drew Brees breaking the record last year on our air. Uh, It's a special place. The place is electric. The people are awesome. Um, And Sean Payton and Drew Brees have something very special. And I'm always fascinated about how they continue to reinvent themselves and and evolve and um yeah we're excited we're excited to kick off in new orleans great thanks to booger john lisa and jay thanks to the media for joining us today just a reminder we'll have a full uh, audio replay and a transcript of the call available at espnpressroom.com and we'll look forward to kicking off the season september 9th on espn's monday night football thanks everyone